Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Michelle Buteau. The closest I've ever been to camping is eating sushi with my hands on the subway. Yuck. (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just want to say a huge thank you to two fans of ours who are donating $25 per month to us through our Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. You can give any amount per month that you'd like, maybe just a dollar a month, $3 a month, $5 a month, whatever it might be. But we're extremely grateful to Siri Hopwood and Bobby Leglisi, who uh, are donating $25 a month to us there at patreon.com slash risk. It really means the world to us, the support that we're getting, the financial support to help keep risk running that we get from our fans at our Patreon page. Also, as you know, we here at Risk and the Story Studio use Stamps.com because it saves time and money for anyone who wants to grow their business rather than you know going to the post office. We can mail any letter, any package, just using our computer and printer, and then the mailman picks it up. It's avoiding the hassle of the lines and also, you know, the expensive postage meter that you might otherwise be renting. You can create your Stamps.com account in minutes online with no equipment and no long-term commitments. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Stamps.com is so easy and convenient. They'll send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. They'll help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale with no long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Now here's the show.
Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Mokov behind me now. I'll tell you something, if you've never heard Risk before, it's the show where you're going to hear stories that are so uncensored or so emotional or so sexual or so whatever that you're not likely to hear them anywhere else. And we tour like crazy. I just got back from Minneapolis. That was a wonderful show. But once a month, we are at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. And once a month, we are at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Oh my gosh. Our bootleg shows in Los Angeles and our Bell House shows in Brooklyn are so very wonderful. If you're ever near those places, you got to check, you know, go to risk-show.com and see when we're appearing there next. We enjoyed this last show that we did at the Bell House so much that I thought we would just run it more or less as is. It was for NYC PodFest. Our dear friend Jeremy Ween, who helps us cast the show, he is the producer of New York City's podcasting festival, NYC PodFest. Oh my gosh, it just gets better and better every year. We're going to start with Alex Brightman. For someone so young, he's got a lot of Broadway credits. Uh, Wicked, Big Fish, Matilda, School of Rock. You can find him on Twitter at a bright monster. Here he is now. This is Alex Brightman with a story we call Blessed Virgin. The uh, lights dim, the overture swells, the curtain rises on a gawky, awkward, smiling 15-year-old kid with long hair. Long hair? Why long hair? Well, because his mom said it would make him look like Tom Cruise from Interview with the Vampire. (laughs) My mom dictated my look for years because I trusted her and because I loved her. I still love her. And that's it. I'm short. I was shorter then. Um, And I was hairy, but like the right amount, I think. Hair on the arms, the legs a little bit, a little pube, a little chest, hairless back, perfect. (laughs) School was odd. Or no, 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 no. Uh, Awful. Awful. I went to an all-boys Jesuit sports high school, and as a nerdy kid who only played baseball only slightly well, I didn't thrive. Also, for the four years, I was just known as Jew. That's true. (laughs) I wasn't tough. I I was too strange for most people, and I was what a lot of people would call in the old days a square, see? And uh, all of that combined, I know what you're thinking. It's like, man, this guy's a Probably a fucking ladies' man, right? (laughs) And what's weird is you're half right. Because the hero of our story has a secret. After school, the hero of our story does community theater. And in the land of musical theater, that wacky land of odd ducks and flamboyant chatterboxes, the straight boy who sings is king. 
peers and parents alike worshipped at my feet. All the girls liked me. All the boys liked me. When I walked into a rehearsal hall, I wasn't 100% sure for the first few moments that I wasn't a Beatle. Um, and do you know what that does to a teenage ego? I mean, it makes it do backflips, front flips. It inflates it like a balloon in a, in a, a Thanksgiving Day parade. But then I'd have to deflate back down into my Bruce Banner-like body, knowing that the next day I'd have to go to school again. It was weird. It was a give and take. It was a double life, like James Bond. Or more accurately, Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> I was inexperienced in the realm of women, or girls, but they seemed like women. Inexperienced, but I watched a lot of porn. Um, and in act, actually, I, I knew a lot about sex in general. The ins, the outs, the ins, the outs. And um, when I watched porn, I really watched it. I just watched. I was fascinated with the, the dialogue and, and, and the, the motivations and the positions. And, and, and a lot of people think that's just what sex is. But I grew up mainly with musicals and romantic ballads and happy endings, not the handjob kinds. And so my perfect ideal of a woman was Julie Jordan from Carousel, without the domestic violence part. And then the, uh, the Sleeping Beauty, but awake, a princess, right? Uh, like, cute, but not hot. That's what I wanted. And I knew I wanted my first time to be with a virgin. I wanted both of us to cry. I wanted it to be special. And I wanted it to be a story. Uh, my dream girl was Victoria. She was five years older than me and five feet taller than me. And she was a golden goddamn goddess. And it looked like Aphrodite like, walked out of the painting and was like, can I help you memorize your lines? And uh, I loved her. I respected her. I looked up to her physically and emotionally. And I, I didn't want to have sex with her because I felt that wasn't enough. <laughs> I, I wanted to lie her down on a cloud and, and feed her grapes and fan her with uh, unicorn feathers and wings and... Um, and she was a virgin, and I wanted that. That was my dream girl. Um, but Victoria isn't the reason I'm here tonight. Megan is. <laughs> Megan is Sandra D at the end of the movie. <laughs> Except without the uh, poofy hair and the song in her heart, in place of that she had tight t-shirts with bands I've never heard of and short black hair and short black skirt, no leggings. And she looked like Coraline if Coraline stayed unhappy. And she smoked, she did cocaine twice, she made out with multiple girls at multiple parties and we fucking hated each other. Hey, what's up, Megan? Nice eyeliner. Black again, I see, matches your soul. Hey, Alex, cool corduroy orange button-down shirt. You look like a wrinkled gay orange. Hey, fuck you. You wish. No, I don't. Also, what really bothered me is she went to play practice for the social aspect. And that killed me. She didn't care about art. She didn't care about my art or the shows I was in. All she cared about was going, hanging out with her friends and going to parties and ruining the moments that I had big on stage. Suddenly Seymour, why are you so sweaty up there? is standing beside you. I'm having a party later. We're all going to drink Cherry Sky, but don't invite Alex. Suddenly Seymour, choke on a dick, Jew. <laughs> Memories. Um, 
It was, it was weird to me that she wasn't a virgin. Um, I didn't like that. Bro, did you hear about, did you hear about Megan? She, she fucked a married guy, and then she, when the wife found out, she fucked her too. Badass. And I was like, not badass. It frustrated me. I, 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 I would think about you know, all the things I'd heard about her, threesomes, foursomes, old guys, young guys, and I'd wake up in the middle of the night shaming her in my head, and, and, and I, I didn't like the way she was ruining my cool rehearsal life with her fuck you attitude, and I thought about her all the time. And then I thought about her all the time, and then I couldn't stop thinking about her. Megan, like in leather. Megan, like tied up a bit. Megan. <laughs> like sticking three fingers in my mouth. Megan blowing a smoke ring in my face. Megan treating my dick like a cigarette. Megan, 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 fuck. It was a Friday night after rehearsal and everyone wanted to go to the park and drink on the swings. It was San Jose, California. We drink on swings. And uh, I couldn't drive. I didn't have my permit. I had failed the test and was waiting to take it again. Um, I end up in Megan's car but she's not driving. Her friend is, and she's in the back seat next to me, and she is drunk. And the type of drunk you can smell about a city away. She smells like cigarettes and grocery store perfume and cherry vodka, and I am aroused. And we get to this park, and we're drinking on swings, and we're drinking a vodka called Thor's Hammer Vodka, which they don't make anymore, probably for good reason. And I am drunk. I'm drunker than I've ever been. I'm drunker than I ever should be. And the next thing I remember is being at Megan's house. I don't remember how we got there. I imagine we floated. So I'm going to go with that. (laughs) We're sitting on Megan's bed and we're listening to Dashboard Confessional. (laughs) And you know the song I'm talking about. Your hair is everywhere. And we're singing and we're laughing and we're drinking and she's smoking. And then suddenly she says, everyone get out except for Alex. And my actual first thought was, oh my God, she's going to beat me up. (laughs) And before I had another thought, she pounced on me and started licking and sucking my face. And it hurt, and it was violent, and I did not like it. I fucking loved it. And my brain is screaming at me, dude, what are you doing? This is not how it's supposed to be. This is not even close. You are waiting for your dream girl. And then as that happened, my penis and heart burst open the door with a pistol, pistol with my brain, and was like, motherfucker, this is your dream girl. And I, who am I to argue with an anthropomorphic penis holding a pistol? So she kisses down my chest and rips off my sweatpants. Yeah, sweatpants. <laughs> Thanks, Mom! And she starts treating my dick like the cigarette, and like as if she had gotten off a plane, a very turbulent plane ride. And that would be the best part of this story to tell you that Megan had braces. Hang on. Every bob up and down ripped my glorious, glorious pubes off of my body. But I didn't give a fuck because I was in a porno. She looked up at me and smiled. And how do I put this lightly? My hair was everywhere. And then... Oh, I made that guy leave. Um, uh, It became the time. 
uh, you know when you're about to throw up and your body's like, dude, you're about to throw up? It's like the same thing for sex. Your body just knows. And, and if I didn't know, Megan clued me in by saying, and you never forget your first time, she looked at me and she said, you know, well, your dick's already been all up in my mouth. You might as well fuck me. Angel from heaven. <laughs> she climbs on board and instantly, I realize why all the people in the pornos are making the sounds they're making. Because it feels Unbelievable. I feel like a guy walking into a casino with a briefcase, like with millions of dollars, like handcuffed to my wrist, like a baller, if my mom could see me now. Or no, that came out wrong. But what came out right was my cum on my belly and on her bed sheets, and then we were done. How do you feel? How do I feel? I feel like a pitcher in an old 90s movie who, against all odds, threw the game-winning ninth-inning strike. <laughs> I hold my teammates hoisting my penis in the air, screaming like I won the World Series. I thanked her. That was weird. And she's like, whatever. And then, as we all know, or as at least some of my men friends know, that after the come comes the come down. The guilt, the shame. I said, oh my God, this was it. That was it. Everything I've been building up for. This is how you do it, man. This is the girl you're going to remember. This is, this is the story you're going to have so that years and years later when someone asks you to do a podcast, you're going to tell everyone this story in Brooklyn? <laughs> and then she was like, you want to go again? I'm like, yeah. So we go again. And this time it's doggy style. And doggy style becomes my favorite thing in the entire world. Because have you ever been to a sandwich shop and you order a panini and they butter both sides of the bread and then they put it in the panini press, and they press it down, and eventually it gets all gooey and great. Doggy style allows the guy to become the panini press and the panini at the same time. So there we are. Two animals fucking like two other animals. And it's pitch black. I can't see anything, it is pitch black. I think I'm kneeling on a crushed beer can, but I don't care. Again, I'm in a porno. And then I hear a sound. And it's not like an oh or a yeah or like give me more of that panini. It's more like behind me and more like a door creaking open. And I'm like, fuck, my friends. Oh my God, my friends are going to come in here and I'm, this, this, at this such great height, they are going to embarrass me and not let me hear the end of this for years. Thankfully, it wasn't them. It was her mom. But I hear, we freeze. It's pitch black. We look like a statue that would be titled Skinny Jewish Kid Struggle Fucks Wednesday Adams. And then... <laughs> and she goes, what, Mom? Which has always bothered me. Because I was like, how many times are you doing this that this is a regular conversation? What, Mom? <laughs> it's like the first time I felt used and the first time I lost my virginity at the exact same time. I felt like just a dildo attached to a human. And what, Mom? Go back to bed. It smells like a goddamn brewery in here. Slam. She saw nothing. Keep fucking me. Okay, are you going to get in trouble? Keep fucking me. Okay, but should I use a condom? Because we haven't... I don't even know you. We've done this twice now. Keep fucking me. Hard logic to argue with. I keep fucking her for 10 more seconds. And then I finish, and I shame stumble my way around her room in the pitch black, and I'm drunk. I forgot this whole time that I was drunk, but I was... And then I remembered I was drunk. And as I'm leaving, she goes, hey. And I go, yeah? And she goes, 
just so you know, you have a great dick. And I went... <laughs> and I walk down the stairs, and I find myself in a parking lot of a Safeway. And then I realize, oh yeah, I way don't drive, and it's two in the morning, and I don't know what to do. So, Tom Cruise calls his mom, and she picks him up and drives him home. Now, on the way home, I mean, not even thinking about that my mom would have smelled cherry vodka all over me. Sorry, Megan, her real name's But, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, whatever. Or Teresa, you don't fucking know. Um, <laughs> I'll unfriend her when I get home tonight. Um, uh, I sit there and I reflect. And I say, okay, take stock. You're 15. You have a great penis. And life is not going the way you thought it would. You just lost your virginity, and it was weird. And it wasn't the way you wanted to, and it wasn't special, but it was memorable. Alex, is this who you are now? Are you a risk taker? Are you an adventurer? Are you the guy with a blindfold that runs full speed off the plank? Are you the guy that like swings through the vines, taking adventure as it comes, grabbing all the positives you can in the moment to counteract the bad in the future? You've never been that guy before. Is that who you are now? And I was like, yeah, that's exactly who I am. And it took my worst enemy to find that out. Now, Megan and I never talked again. We banged all summer long. There just wasn't a lot of talking going on. Thanks very much. The next storyteller I want to bring up, it's such a pleasure to have him doing the show. He has never done anything like this before, never told a story, you know, a true personal story at a storytelling show like this before. And we love our virgins <laughs> because there's a risk in that right there. But he is an MC and a member of the hip hop group Tanya Morgan. You can find him on Twitter at Don Dub. Please welcome the stage, Don Will. Just wanted to say that the Twitter is Don Will and the Instagram is Don Dub. But follow me on both. I'm on both. Have you guys ever been happy enough to die? Like, I know it sounds insane, like it's counterintuitive as fuck, but just like the moment you're in is so perfect and nothing good can happen after. Nothing as good can happen, so you're just like, fuck it, I might as well check out. <laughs> well, that happened to me before, I've had that feeling. That for me was in Paris 2015. Now for those of you at home listening on iTunes or whatever you subscribe to, let me explain something. I'm black. <laughs> and I mean like slave stock black. The only asterisk to my blackness is my hair. When it's cut short, I look Dominican, you know what I'm saying? But when it's long, it's silky and shit like Kenny G, you know what I'm saying? Like a young Kenny G in this motherfucker. But make no mistake about it, I'm 100% nigga, and I know because 
when I asked my dad, I was a little kid exploring race and identity, like, yo, dad. I was, yeah, dad. What am I? And he was just like, you a nigga. They're going to call you a nigga, so you a nigga. So I've always known my place walking through the world. But Paris was the first time where I felt American before black, which was crazy because I've been here for 40 fucking years, and I've never felt American like that. I mean, I'm visibly black, you know what I'm saying? Like, I can't take this shit off, but over there, the minute I would speak, or if you were over here, a conversation I'm having, you're like, oh, that's, a, that's an American. It's kind of crazy. You know what I'm saying? And make no mistake about it, I love being black. I'm black and proud, but this shit is exhausting. <laughs> Trust me. If I could trade in all the cool slang and tight dances and shit for not getting shot, cash me out right now. I'm done. Also in Paris, I saw 85% less police officers, which made me 85% less guilty of being black. And that's a crime if you guys haven't been paying attention. But, so as Kevin told you, I'm in a group, Tanya Morgan, and I was over there with my group, Tanya Morgan, to do music. We make indie, hip-hop, boom, bap, backpack, rap shit, AKA you can't make money off of it because it has samples. <laughs> so, you know, we're just over there, I mean, in the States, you know, we do shows and shit, but over there, they respect it like it's jazz. They give it the proper accolades. They treat it like it's art. So we're over there being paid handsomely for our services. And when I tell you they were fucking paying us, we got paid to perform, paid to travel. They paid us to rehearse. The only thing they didn't pay for was the fucking French lessons. It was pretty fucking amazing. Granted, the hotel they had us in was kind of shitty. I mean, but I'm in Paris. I'm easy to impress at this point. Kanye and Jay-Z made a song about this shit. I'm sold. It's just amazing the whole time. But as you could imagine, a shitty hotel had an even shittier lobby. Like, the lobby was just a check-in counter. It wasn't even a, a full lobby. The dining room was under the lobby. It was like this dungeon-looking space with no windows. So if you wanted to eat in a fucking windowless room, feel free. I spent most of my time next door at the Cafe Bombier, which is... My French is horrible, by the way. But the Cafe Bombier which is just like you know, your normal cafe, restaurant. You know, they serve coffee in the morning, drinks at night, food all day. They had Wi-Fi. They had the gallery seating so you could like, you know, people watching shit. It was, it was my home base, you know what I'm saying? That's where I spent all my time at, and this is, not, this is not an advertisement for them, but if you're ever over there, go check them out. I had an assigned seat. It was my spot. I learned a few lessons in France, though. The first lesson I learned out there was that it's a small world. It was like almost on a weekly basis, a new friend from the States was stopping by. We would go to museums, sightsee, eat sandwiches and shit. You know what I'm saying? It's pretty dope. I saw, I started treating it like it was just Brooklyn. You know what I'm saying? I was just texting people like, yo, I see you got a show going on. Slide me to the guest list, getting in your spot. You know what I'm saying? It was cool. I saw Mob Deep for the first time there at, Cafe, at uh, Bataclan. You guys know who Mob Deep is, right? All right. If not, just Google him. Just Google. You're on iTunes anyway. Google him. The second lesson that I learned in Paris is that you don't really need words to communicate. Like, the language barrier is not that steep if you're just a decent, kind person. So I would be over there with my, with my fucked up French and, you know what I'm saying, trying to order shit and just handing a person money, pointing and mispronouncing words and hoping they would give me what I asked for and my correct change. Well, every time I did that, I not only got what I asked for and my correct change, sometimes I got an impromptu French lesson, which was, you know what I'm saying, like... They weren't paying for that anyway, so I got that for free. <laughs> it was truly a transformative experience for me. So, why am I in my hotel room the night before I fly back to Brooklyn, 
looking at the Eiffel Tower because my hotel room had this amazing view of the Eiffel Tower. It was like, it looked like a Christmas tree every night. They light it up. It was fantastic. But I'm looking at the Eiffel Tower and I'm looking down at the ground below at Cafe Bombier where I sit every day and drink coffee and thinking, I should just jump in this shit. I mean, going back to Brooklyn, what, what am I going back to? Suicide in the black community is, is, we avoid it, we ignore it, we act like it doesn't happen, but it happens, and it happens a lot. And I had these thoughts, and I have these thoughts a lot, all the time. Actually, in preparing for this show, I found a journal entry from when I was turning 37, and the first line was, shocked you haven't killed yourself yet, ha ha, you know, like, jokey, jokey, whatever. But it's a real issue, and it's a real topic, and we avoid it as, in the black community. And, to be totally honest, I was more shocked that I was thinking about jumping off of the building than I was that I was thinking about dying because I'm fucking terrified of heights. <laughs> like when I tell you like, yo, everybody gotta die, but you do not have to plummet to your death. That's some extra shit. <laughs> Good on that. But things at home just seem so awful and everything in Paris seems so perfect. I mean, I crowd surfed at a sold out show it was surreal. It was almost like something I pulled out of my imagination and laid out for a month and just made happen. And coming back home felt like returning to a war. It's a fight. And if you're in New York, you know it's a fight. Every day is a fight. You gotta, you gotta fight to get home from the airport. You gotta literally fight to get out of the terminal to your apartment. You gotta fight to pay rent for that apartment. You gotta fight in your relationship that's on the rocks. Maybe y'all don't, but I did at the time. <laughs> So, you know, it's just, why keep fighting? What is the fight for? What's it worth? What are you doing? Just cash out. I mean, I talk to my mom, I talk to my daughter, I talk to everybody I need to talk to. Seems like a nice place to put a bow on things. Call it a day. Also, I'm gonna be totally honest, death is an amazing marketing plan. If you're trying to sell records, <laughs> die. Like Pete. Cat's like, yo, you heard about Don? Nah, what happened? He died on tour in Paris. Oh, shit, all of a sudden, they're looking through my music to find clues to my death. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Boom, my album skyrockets up iTunes. I'm a household name. All I had to do was die. Obviously, I didn't jump, though. I didn't. I promise you. <laughs> the next day, I went down to Cafe Bombier, checked out of the hotel. And I just sat in my seat, had my coffee, and just, you know, tried to memorize the city and remember the experiences that I had and just think of Paris as not a peak, but a preview. You know, like not the high point of my life, but just the good things to come, you know? So I left Paris, flew back to Brooklyn, well, flew back to JFK, landed, and immediately my phone just starts going fucking crazy. I'm getting text after text after text. Oh my God, are you okay? Are you safe? Call me, please get in touch, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yo, what the fuck is happening? Like, so I get out of the plane, I go to the terminal, I look up and I see on the TV that there was the terror attacks in Paris were happening right then. I don't have to tell you guys how horrible that shit was. I wasn't there, but I was just there. So for me, some of the places they were showing were just the place where I saw my first Mob Deep concert was the Bataclan, which was the, now the scene where the Eagles of Death Metal, the big massacre happened. Even my beloved Cafe Bombier 
got sprayed with gunfire. Like, the seat that I was sitting in that morning, contemplating, you know, how life can be better and, and all that, had gunfire, like rows of bullets got hit. And even crazier, the space in front of the seat that I was looking down from my window thinking about jumping to my own death, there was a body laying there. So it just made it more visceral when you, like, that guy didn't have a choice. You know what I'm saying? I have a choice. That guy didn't. So when I think about my time in Paris, I think a part of me did die. I think the part of me that wanted to die died. Because I do still suffer some, from depression with the side of suicidal thoughts. That still happens. But it's a lot easier to fight now. I think that the perception shift was that thinking that my family, like, like giving up on myself is giving up on everybody that, that cares for me. Giving up on my family, giving up on, like, you know, they put so much time and effort and love and energy into my life. It would be careless to take it away from them. And... If there's one takeaway from this entire thing, it would just be to be present. You know, you gotta, you gotta endure that pain to enjoy the joy that comes after it. And that's my time. Thank you very much. For crowds I can't avoid I'm at a point of no return Too old to just be going home A bitter broken man Would they really understand? Damn Don, you ain't waste no time Losing your mind But do you know why? Huh? You know why? Do you think I Do you think I Do you think I Do you think I do Do you think I Do you think I Do you think I this is Risk. This is Don Will behind me now, who we also just heard live at the Bell House. Now, as you know, now it's more important than ever to be getting good, solid, fact-checked information. And you can be doing that with Texture, this app that brings hundreds, literally, of magazines to your fingertips uh, via your phone or your iPad. Uh, let's see, Esquire Magazine, Time Magazine, Reader's Digest, National Geographic, Sports Illustrated, Entertainment Weekly, Forbes, Vanity Fair, Vogue, Fast Company, Rolling Stone, Cosmopolitan, Essence, Fortune, GQ, New York, Newsweek. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Texture is searchable. You can mark what you like, check out back issues, view bonus video content, curate things so you've got the articles that are right for you whenever you want. Texture is normally $9.99 a month. You get over 200 magazines. If you sign up right now at texture.com slash risk, you get a 14-day trial for free. Right now, Texture's offering our listeners a 14-day free trial when you go to texture.com slash risk. That's 14 days to try Texture for free at texture.com slash risk. 
Let's get back to the stories. We're going to hear now from another big Broadway talent. Lawrence O'Keefe is a composer and lyricist. You might know him from the musicals Heathers, Bat Boy, Legally Blonde. And you can find him on Twitter at Larry is O'Keefe. Here he is now with a story we call Curses. Seem nice. Thank you. you. Having a good time? Thank you very much. Oh, you guys are wonderful. Thank you. Uh, I am going to read a little bit off this because I I was just visited backstage by three old friends: my stage fright, my dyslexia, and my stutter. <laughs> so wish me luck. Um, <clears throat> I'm Larry. I have the best job in the world. I get to write musicals, but what I tend to write musicals is about a very cruel worlds full of carnage, like Heather's and Bat Boy, and the cruelest of all. Legally Blonde. I am very qualified to write about Cruel Worlds because I went to Horace Greeley High School in Chappaqua, New York, which is a foresty suburb where you are fucked if you have no car and no money. And I had no car and no money. Um, It was, uh, I hear it's gotten better, but the Reagan years never really ended there. And later I was adapting Heathers for the stage and the original screenwriter, Dan Waters, a god, came to the workshop. He was incredibly generous. He was so nice. He was so supportive. And we started swapping high school stories. And in 10 minutes he stopped me and said, Larry, Larry, I'm sorry. I think you went to a meaner school than me and I wrote Heathers. (laughs) I'm not going to give you a lot of details, but imagine the worst thing that happened at your school. I guarantee you it happened when I was there. So now you're having a great feeling, aren't you? Um, All right, I noticed something recently. Not only do all of my shows tend to feature a misfit plunged into a cruel world, but in every one of my shows, the misfit gets a makeover. And then I was like, where did I learn this habit? Where did I learn this love of makeovers? And it is obvious from my childhood watching John Hughes movies. You have seen John Hughes movies. 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, yes. I'm hearing applause. Pretty in Pink, Some Kind of Wonderful, yes. Uh, They are wishful teen fable bullshit. They are not any more truthful than any other teen movie, but, oh, those makeovers. Do you remember? Do you remember Ali Sheedy, who's like the cranky Asperger's girl with the the dandruff? And she gets a beautiful makeover from Molly Ringwald, the rich princess. And then, so, Ali Sheedy gets to kiss Emilio Estevez. A dream come true. And, of course, Molly Ringwald herself in Pretty in Pink played the poor girl who got a makeover from her you know, friend Annie Potts, and then she sewed her own prom dress and finally won the heart of Andrew McCarthy at the prom. So I took this to heart, and for some reason, my takeaway from this was competence can be taught. I was surrounded by all these people born into money, and they just were effortless, but you know, not effortless for me. My parents were pretty poor in a rich town. They never spent money on anything. No TV, almost no toys, no orthodontia, no car, and usually no shampoo. My dad would say things like, no one needs to wash their hair more than once a week. Stop wasting water. (laughs) My dad also invented the holiday Festivus. 
You know that, the Seinfeld holiday festivals? Yeah, he, it's true, you can Google it. My brother wrote the Seinfeld episode about it. It's all true, and I'm not gonna talk about it tonight. <laughs> Much like when I was in high school, I would not talk about it when it was going on. All right, but anyway, my loving, weird, and quite depressed parents were incompetent at teaching their kids any kind of life skills, like bathing, brushing teeth, uh, dressing yourself, conversational skills. We were, to the naked eye, we were losers. That's the definition. You go to high school, you see a person who looks like that, and they're a loser. And, but, John Hughes says, competence can be taught. And acquire skills, you will acquire love, right? So I was like, fuck it, I'm not gonna stick around and be a loser, I'm gonna teach myself, I taught myself. I mowed lawns, I saved money, I bought shampoo, I learned to cut my own hair, something I apparently have forgotten how to do. Um, but, and if mom will not pay for acne medication, I will use cotton swabs and vodka. We had vodka. Um, a lot of trial and error. My freshman year, I was exactly like Anthony Michael Hall in 16 Candles, a repugnant nerd. I would flee me. Sophomore year, I was getting better. I was ducky and pretty and pink. Yeah, I had blazers with the sleeves rolled up and hats. Oh, God. And I'm playing Billy Joel on theater department pianos. Uh, junior year, I was, you know, still tried to improve. I was preppy. I was almost, almost achieved Cameron in... Uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Remember that guy, Alan Rock? Remember him? He was like the, the nerdy wet blanket guy with a cold. He's like, I want my daughter. That guy? I love him. It was great. Again, not cool yet, but getting there. But senior year is sweet if you are a theater kid. Because it's small pond, medium frog, and I'm aiming for Andrew McCarthy in Pretty in Pink. I'm falling short, of course, but I feel like now I have reached the final 10 minutes of my own John Hughes movie. Loser blossoms, finds the love of his life, roll credits. I'm ready. Okay, so first day of senior year, at auditions for the school play, I meet, let us call her, Jamie Summers. Let's just call her that. Uh, a junior transfer student, an IBM family, a gorgeous tall blonde, cotton candy hair, utterly luminescent, and she looked exactly like Galadriel, Queen of the Elves. And it is fitting because, of course, the elves had to leave and the world is not made for elves anymore. And to be clear, she was, throughout all this, the warmest and kindest person. She never had a bad word for anyone. She was cheerful and kind, and she tried to see the best in everybody. Therefore, at this school, she was utterly fucking doomed. And I tried to make her laugh. I go up to her, and hey, what's your name? Make her laugh, and it works. Whatever it was I said, she laughed really hard, and she said, oh, thank you so much. Uh, I needed that. I've been crying all day. High school. Um, so, uh, well, I mean, within a week, by the way, her nickname was Miss Nebraska because at her old school, she had been a majorette and had twirled baton. At our school, there were no batons, only cruelty. Anyway, um, Jamie had never met me, though, as a gross, unwashed nerd. She met me looking preppy with my on-point hair and my cardigan sweater. Right? So, we hung out. Two weeks later, we kiss. We are dating. I tell people she's my girlfriend. I am walking on the fucking sun. Two weeks after that, I tell her I love you. A week later, she dumps me. She calls me and says, Larry, look, Oliver and Drew drove me to the Def Leppard concert, and I realized I am brand new in town. I want to make friends. At my old school, nobody went steady, so I don't want to be seen as someone's possession. Now, today, if you're woke, you're like, well, of course, Jesus Christ, but this was, you know, this is like the 50s. 
um, in our school. So I'm like, I'm, I'm, the tears are coming down out of my nose. And I'm like, is this because I don't have a car and Drew does? And she says, of course not. It was Oliver's car. It's true. And that night I cried a lot. I was like, what the fuck? I thought Jamie was my reward. She was the end of my John Hughes movie. She was my last 10 minutes, right? How long is this fucking movie going to be, John Hughes? So, went to school. We talked. Very civilized. Bell rang. Time to go. And I don't know what happened to me. I don't know what possessed me. I say, Jamie, may I have one last kiss goodbye? And she's like, sure. We leaned in, and I did it perfectly. Two seconds, super innocent, no tongue. And as we kissed, I did not say a word out loud, but inwardly, silently, I put a curse on her. <laughs> now, it's a very benign curse. It was a very benign curse. And I, it, was, it just was this. It was just this. Let her not be happy with anyone else besides me. <laughs> oh, come on. You've cursed people much worse than that. Yes, right? See, yes, it's true. Okay. Okay, so into the friend zone we go, right? Next few months, we would hang. She'd tell me how her dates went with Peter or Drew or, or Jody or John or Terry, et cetera, et cetera. But her dates just fizzled. And then they, they dried up. And she couldn't even make friends. She started looking different. And her skin went a little gray. And her hair went limp. And the cotton candy is her... And she wasn't really eating. And I stayed supportive. I never criticized I was whipped. I was in love with her still. I would never criticize. I never complained about anything because she was spending more and more time with me. She started saying things like, I can't make friends. You are my only friend. So Christmas rolls around. I get into a good college. I take my savings and I have guilted my parents into matching me and I get a car. It is a Chevy Citation. (laughs) Um, But it's a car. And after Christmas dinner, I drive to her house we trade presents in her bedroom, we give each other back massages, and we, you know, like then we inch closer and closer, and we are kissing. We are making out again. After two and a half months of my broken heart, we are kissing again. Curses work. <laughs> the next day, we're watching TV, and we start rounding the bases really fast. I mean, and I, believe me, again, because I'm terrified of doing something wrong, I am not pushing things. She is. I'm like, all righty then, John Hughes. But then she pulls back and she says, hey, Larry, um, I am fine with this, but I need you, please, to not tell anyone we are dating. And I'm like, uh, why? She says, well, I have a list. I say, a list of what? She says, guys who I would like to date. I'm like, oh, how many guys? And she goes, oh, about 10 or 12, look. And I'm like, oh, I'm not on this list. She goes, well, of course not. You're you. Ah, That was rough. But then she rounded third. So (laughs) I wasn't complaining that much. Oh, and she updated her list every week, exactly like Casey Kasem's American Top 40. (laughs) So I am confused. But I did not ever push things. She always pushed things. So one day in January, I was her first. We did it. And she pushed. I did not. She's enjoying it. She's smiling. Her eyes are closed. I'm like, yeah, John Hughes movie now, please. Yes. And in the middle of it, she calls out my name. No, actually, she says Eric. Um, I didn't bother 
to correct her because you're 17, you're having sex with the love of your life. Larry, Eric, it's not that different, you know. Um, I'm not going to quibble over a couple of consonants. Eric, apparently, by the way, was her best friend from high school, so lucky him. Um, Afterwards, she said, Larry, okay, I'm fine with this, but you're still not telling people that we're dating, okay? Oh, by the way, about two weeks previously, she had begun talking about killing herself. And uh, she said, I had no friends, I have no skills, I have no future, I am in constant pain, Larry. And I'm like, wow, Jamie, we should call a therapist. She's like, no, no doctors. This is not a big deal, really. It runs in my family, uh, you know, the sadness, and some of my relatives have been institutionalized, but look, you, you can't tell anyone, though. If you tell anyone, they will take me away. You are my only hope. That was my worst mistake, because rather than challenging these assertions, I, you know, I was 17, I didn't know which way was up, so I really became a 17-year-old, unlicensed, unqualified psychotherapist and occasionally paramedic to a deeply depressed girl. A few times I restrained herself from throwing herself down a flight of stairs. Once I even stopped her from drinking drain cleaner and this was before we ever saw Heather's. So I had a secret I could not tell about a problem I knew I could not fix. Plus every week, couple of weeks she'd say, Larry, I just need a friend, we should stop sleeping together. And that broke my heart every time, but I never argued. When she said stop, I said okay. When she resumed, I said okay. The first time we stopped, I drove home from her house on the wind, like a windy, foresty road, passing a very big, huge tree on a dangerous curve where two years previously a Horace Greeley student had plowed his car into it and died. And I passed that tree and I realized all I have to do is just drive straight. Just don't follow the road, stay on course, and the tree will take care of everything. I began to think about that tree a lot. But prom was coming up. Everybody goes to prom. Yeah, so gotta go. And so there was a one-day window to buy your tickets. If you weren't already in a serious relationship, that was the day everybody like negotiated. Uh, so I found Jamie in the computer center, and I say, I get down on one knee. Do not do that. <laughs> do not do that for any... If you don't have a ring, do not get down on one knee. But I did. Jamie Summers, will you do me the honor of going to the prom with me? And she says, oh, um, Maybe. I have to ask Oliver first. So I waited for two hours and she asked Oliver, and this is all true, Oliver said, maybe, I have to ask Natalie first. Oh. Oliver asked Natalie and Natalie said, um, maybe, I have to ask Larry first. Um, but of course, am I fucked up in the head? Yes, and I, and I, I didn't notice that maybe other people actually were responding to skills and other people wanted to, no, I, w I had my mission, I had my calling, I had my job. And so I told Natalie, no thank you. Natalie said yes to Oliver, Oliver said no to Jamie, Jamie said yes to me. Param is on! So, country club in Rye, New York, right across from Playland, all right? Tuxedos and gowns, Jamie has pulled her shit together and she's gorgeous once more. And everybody's nice to each other, maybe it's end of the year, maybe a lot of us are seniors, whatever. We dance in a circle to lean on me by Club Nouveau. Theater kids dancing to Club Nouveau. That is my happiest memory. And Jamie and I slow danced to Howard Jones, No One Is To Blame. The irony was lost on me. In front of everybody, Jamie looks me in the eyes for a long time, then she kisses me in front of everybody. And she says, Larry, you have saved my life a hundred times. I'll never know how to thank you. I love you. And we were married two years later. No, I'm lying, I'm lying. I lied. I lied. 
She did kiss me, and she did say I love you in front of everybody, but then she said, I'm going to go dance with Oliver. <laughs> True story. She then danced with all top 12 of her list that week. In order. And I'm watching, and the tears are running down my heart. And I notice she looks happy. She is meeting new people. She is making friends. So I drive her home, 4 a.m., she hugs me, and she says, thank you so much for a great night. This would be a good way to go out. I think tomorrow I should be dead. And we argue. I was like, well, no. And I say, you should live. And she, she, you know, she won't really commit. Finally, it's 5 in the morning. i got to go home. So I leave, and I'm driving home on the windy road. And the tree is coming up in a few minutes. So I start to press my foot on the gas, going faster and faster. And the bend with the tree is coming up. In about eight seconds, I have to make my decision to go with the road or stay on the path. And with about three seconds left, I go, ah! And I hit the brakes really hard because right in the road is the biggest fucking turtle you have ever seen in your life. It is the world's biggest snapping turtle. If, this, if it had been a carry-on bag at the airport, they would have been like, no, you have to check it. That, it was that big. I didn't know they came that big. It is just standing there between me and the tree. And it's slowly like chewing on, a, on like a twig. And I get out of the car and I look at him and he looks at me. And in that instant, I realized, well, there's my answer. Maybe I was willing to my kill, kill myself, but I had instinctively refused to bring another living creature with me. Then I instantly realized that for the last couple months, Jamie has been trying to do the same for me. So I realized in that instant, I have to undo the curse. So I'm like, dear God, and or turtle. <laughs> Uh, I want to make amends. I cursed the love of my life because I couldn't accept that I am not the love of hers. I thought I was her white knight, but actually I'm basically like a bellhop at a hotel who takes the luggage up without being asked and then stands in the room with a handout waiting for a tip. So I'm sorry, turtle god. Would you please undo the curse? Please make sure, please make sure Jamie lives to find happiness with somebody who is not me. And the turtle walks off the road. And he turns back with a look, and the look is clearly saying, now don't go cursing anyone, you hear? <laughs> All right. So the next day I called Jamie. I told her, you get a therapist or I will get you one. She did, and no one called her away. Graduation, summer, more drama here and there, but I was getting ready to go off to college, and she was getting ready to let me. And then, years later, I got to dance with her at her wedding to a fantastic guy. And we danced and I hugged her and I shook hands with her husband and then he and I stood at the bar while she danced with 12 different guys. <laughs> each of whom had the same exact look on their face that I knew I had on mine. So clearly life is not a John Hughes movie. This one was clearly more French. But we both survived it and we survived the cruelest school in America. She was the love of my life for one year. And it did not kill either of us. And as happy endings go, I'll take it. Thank you very much. Lawrence O'Keefe! Oh, my goodness gracious. Um, we're talking about uh, John Hughes movies. The Breakfast Club came out when I was, I think, 16. 
And all I, he, he mentioned Emilio Estevez. I don't remember anything about the movie because the moment Emilio Estevez came on the screen, I was like, oh my God, look at his butt. Look at his butt, look at his butt. Like he would be sitting down and I would be like, his butt is underneath, like what's pictured there. And then midway through the movie, there's that very emotional monologue where he talks about being bullied and some bullies like tape, duct taped his butt cheeks together. And I'm like, oh my God, he's talking. He's talking about his butt. Everyone in this cinema is now thinking about his butt too. Uh, which, of course, was then even outdone by the movie Young Guns 2, which a lot of critics called Young Buns 2. Because you really got to see his butt in that movie. Anyway, just where my mind went while Larry was telling his story. <laughs> All right, like I said, uh, we have one last story for Risk tonight, and she is one of my very favorites. The last story she told on the show, I cut from an episode of the podcast so that I could have it just to email to friends. Like, if you don't want to listen to the rest of the show, for God's sake, just listen to this. She is hilarious, and you can find her comedy album. It's uh, produced by Comedy Central. It's called Shut Up. <laughs> uh, you can find it wherever comedy albums are available. Please welcome the stage, Michelle Bouteau! Hi. How you guys doing? You looking good. Ah, oh, my feelings have feelings. Okay, so one year for Christmas, my mother got me health insurance. And... <laughs> She literally was like, here is the Kickstarter for your Cigna health insurance. You're too cute for bacteria. Keep it moving. And then two months later, I found out I had a benign brain tumor. Um, so I was like, bitch, never get me a president again. <laughs> because this is all your fault. Um, so I found out I had this tumor because I wasn't getting my period. And I went to the doctor and he took some blood tests and he's like, you have a high level of prolactin, which means one of two things. It means you have a benign tumor on your pituitary or you have a cyst on your ovary. And I was like, oh my God, more Christmas presents. Um, thank you. And I always considered myself to be healthy. You know, like I could do all like the stretches and the moves in yoga class. I could touch my toes. I'm like very flexible for a size 16. I'm like, I'm cool. You know, like there's always like 10 to 12 pounds you have to lose, but like I never felt like I was sick. And so when I heard that I had a tumor, they were like, but benign is the word you want to hear. I'm like, I don't want to hear any of these words. <laughs> like I don't want to hear any. Like, my friend's mom got throat cancer, and she's like, it's kind of the cancer you want. I'm like, you don't want any cancer. <laughs> like, benign all of a sudden makes it okay. Yeah, yeah, thank God, you know, like, it won't kill me, but it's just like, oh, it's not AIDS, it's HIV, you know? <laughs> or like, oh, he's not racist, he's prejudiced. There's a difference. You know, it's like 10,000 spoons when you... I'm bad at examples. Anyways, <laughs> I'm so bad at examples, but... Leaving the hospital knowing that something's growing in your brain. Like, I've never seen Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> but when I was walking down that hall, like, I heard Coldplay, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, this is... <laughs> what would Katherine Heigl do? <laughs> so, 
when you have a mass in your pituitary, your body thinks it's pregnant already. And one of the two signs that you know your tumor is getting bigger is if you have a blurred peripheral vision or if you're lactating. <laughs> and I was like, oh, more gifts. Keep them coming. <laughs> So I have to go visit this endocrinologist, right? And I didn't even know what an endocrinologist was. I don't even know how to spell it. Thank God for ZocDoc and Spellcheck. It's a doctor for your hormones. And, you know, I always, for whatever reason, I love Indian doctors. I just feel safe. I feel like they know a lot of stuff from other countries. Whatever. So, so I found, like, the oldest Indian doctor. He looked like E.T. He was adorable. He was just like... He was just a bag of bones, but I could tell he had so many awards and certificates. So I was like, yes. Like, <laughs> like, he had three hairs, like, on his head and, like, so much hair on his ears. I was like, whatever. This is his journey. I'm not going to judge it. And he was so old that he had his son in the room with him taking notes while he was talking to me because he couldn't remember it all. And I was like, is this a sign? <laughs> And then I will never forget, because guys, you never forget this day where your doctor asks you to milk your own breasts in front of him. Where were you when that happened? Everybody look at your partner. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> because I think this is so ridiculous anyways, I'm just like, are you serious? He's like, yes, you have to milk your breasts. I'm like, are you serious? He's like, you have to milk your breasts. Is breast coming out? I'm like, no. He's like, well, let's try and milk it. I'm like... <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I just kind of like... <laughs> am topless with like Patel and Son. <laughs> This is my truth. And um, so I'm just trying to like, just like squeeze my boob. And Dr. Patel kind of yells at me. He goes, harder. I was like, all right. He's like, like you're milking a cow. I'm like, what? He goes, like you're milking a cow. And I'm like, do I look like I know how to milk a cow? Do I look like I am serving farm to like table realness right now? No, honey, I do not know how to milk a cow. I've never even been camping, okay? The closest I've ever been to camping is eating sushi with my hands on the subway. Yuck. <laughs> so gross. You never really use a soy sauce that way either, but. <laughs> So, of course, Dr. Patel's like, let me do it. And I'm like, okay. So then he wraps his hand around it like it's a big-ass hamburger. And he's, like, kind of, like, trying to, like, get the ducks all warm or whatever. I don't know. And then his hand starts shaking. And he's, like, kind of holding on to my, my, my beautiful brown bosom. As if, like, he's, like, water skiing and, like... My boob is like the rope attached to the boat. He's like, ah! So then Sun comes in. He's like, are you okay? And it's just like four hands, one tit. I mean... 
I was like, guys, can we just say there's no milk? <laughs> and I left his office feeling like, okay, I have graduated from Grey's Anatomy to like every Adam Sandler movie. <laughs> this is gonna be my life. So a couple years have passed by and my levels are like normal because I could take medication for it. And you know, my husband and I are thinking about having kids because you know, I'm Caribbean, he's Dutch, our kids will be so cute. Just like, they'd have a hashtag and the Uniqlo campaign. Like it's a whole, just an interracial thing. Oh, it's, oh, you know, just like, so I'm like, of course this is what we have to do. But the question is, okay, how do you get pregnant when your body already thinks it's pregnant? So now I have to go see a fertility doctor. And I'm like, what? Like, it was almost a joke to me because I'm Jamaican and Haitian. Like, I should get pregnant just like dancing to Mark Anthony or Walt twerking to Beanie Mom. <laughs> the minute I hear Romantic Call by Patch, I'm like, put your dick away. You know what I mean? Because like... <laughs> so for me, I'm like, oh my, I can't believe this is going to be my life. But okay, let's talk about it. And I'm... Um, talking to the fertility doctor and he's just giving me all these like big names. I'm like, you gotta slow it down, I'm from Jersey. Okay, <laughs> you gotta keep it real simple. And he's like, okay, you're gonna have to do in vitro fertilization, IVF. And I'm like, go on. And he's like, basically, we're gonna pump you up with hormones. They're gonna pump me up with hormones like a Purdue chicken breast, right? <laughs> and then they're gonna monitor me three times a week. I have to go in three times a week and spread for strangers and do blood work. And I was like, okay, why do you have to check me so often? And he literally said, so you don't become Octomom. I was like, okay. <laughs> Remember that bitch? <laughs> what is Octomom doing now? <laughs> she does not have enough titties to feed all them kids. <laughs> So everyone has this idea of like, what it's gonna be like when you have kids, right? Like, oh, we were drunk and we were like in the backseat of his whatever, overlooking that mountain or whatever. But for me, it's like, my husband has to go into a room and jerk off in a dish. I have to pump my body up with hormones. They have to take out my eggs. They have to see if my eggs like his sperm and they chill. <laughs> and if they still like each other, they put them back in. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's fine. That's like, at this point, I'm like, it's all good. Just do it. Like, I'll probably have twins. They'll be so cute. I'll be like reality show ready. Go, 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 go. <laughs> so the first week I started hormone shots, my husband was giving me the shots because I'm like, if I got to take them, you got to give it. Okay. Like, that's how that goes. Sort of like I cook you clean. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I had too much rosé one night, got a little tipsy, not drunk, but tipsy. And I forgot I was taking hormones and I told my husband I wanted a divorce. Then, then I cried, then I laughed, then I wrote a poem about it, <laughs> then I did seven push-ups. <laughs> that was week one. <laughs> week two, I adopted a dog. <laughs> my ovaries were high-fiving and I'm like, I gotta take care of something. And um, my husband was like, what kind of dog do you want? I'm like, a big one! And so he adopted a lab mastiff and I was like, I should have Googled what a Mastiff was because I have a fucking pony. And so now I'm taking hormone shots and just picking up shit all day. I'm like, what am I? I feel like a farmer. 
so finally I reached the end of that cycle and I still didn't take it as seriously as I should. Like I even showed up for my like transfer, my little harvesting transfer when they put the eggs back in you. I showed up really hungover. Like I opened my legs and it was just like Jameson. And I was just like, I'm so, but I'm like, whatever, I'm 37. I have freckles and like brown titties. I'm cute, whatever, just put it in. We'll see what happens. (laughs) You guys are so judgy. So I got pregnant, and I, thank you. And I was like, yeah, this is awesome. Of course I'm gonna be pregnant. Like, I'm Caribbean, this is like what happens. You know, like I spread my legs, I paid the $20,000, because insurance doesn't cover it. And I was still working and doing comedy. I was on the nightly show with Larry Wilmore, and I was on with Bill Nye, the science guy. And it was, this week was so crazy because they found water on Mars, but it wasn't trending. Caitlyn Jenner was trending. So the producer had produced me in a way to be like, why is this not trending? And I was like, well, maybe if the water were like tears of Caitlyn Jenner, it would be trending. And so I said something along those lines, and Bill Nye, the science guy, was like, the fuck? And so... <laughs> I got so, I've never been internet bullied before, and it was just like rape threats, death threats, Bill Cosby wouldn't even rape you, all this other shit, and I was like, oh my God, really, Bill Cosby would rape me, by the way, and like, (laughs) not that I'm bragging, I'm just letting you know, and I was like, this is insane, and I've like never been internet bullied like this, and I was like, I couldn't even look at the internet, because I was like, people are so, they're just, they're just so mean, and so I went to my doctor for my weekly sonogram, and I had lost the baby. And I knew for certain it was for stress. And I was like, you know what? That's cool. I'm a survivor. I'm a boss-ass bitch. Let's keep it going. I've got the money. I'm going to go back in. I'm going to do this IVF, and we're going to make this happen, right? (sighs) This is, like, so insane. The only day they could do abortions was on a Wednesday. I had a pilot in L.A. I flew to L.A. with a dead fetus inside me. I know. I put on some Spanx and fake lashes, and I was just like, hey, how are you? And people would ask me, how do I feel? And I'm like, dead inside, because literally I had dead inside. And I, I have to laugh through my pain, y'all, because I'm really too cute to be this sad. Do you know what I mean? But I was like, I'm a boss-ass bitch, and I'm going to take care of this shit. I'm going to get you your pilot. I'm going to come back and do my abortion and do my thing. And healed and went back into IVF again, Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And this time I was like, I'm going to be like a Puerto Rican Gwyneth Paltrow. I'm going to be like a holistic healer. I was chia seeds in my teeth. Um, acai berries. I learned how to say acai. Um, no caffeine. Acupuncture. Like maca. Hemp seeds. I was like, yo, what? Tea tree, what's up? Let's do a split. And... <laughs> Did another cycle of IVF, got pregnant. I was like, thank you, thank you, thank you. Then I was out to dinner one night with my husband and his Dutch friends, he Dutch. And, <laughs> and I had a weird stomach ache. And I was like, oh, this ceviche is fucking me up. Because you don't even know what's happening in your body sometimes when it happens, right? And so I was like, no, this doesn't feel right. And I went to the bathroom and I was having another miscarriage. And I don't know if you guys have ever been through anything like this, but there's never a convenient time to go through something like this, right? And when I came back to the table, I felt like one of those old um, TV shows, you know, where like the wife is like, can I talk to you in the kitchen for a minute? (laughs) And everybody knew something was wrong, 
but I couldn't tell them because also talking about this makes people very uncomfortable. And I was really sad, but then I was also like, what's wrong with me? What's happening? I had all these questions and no one could answer them. I tried to talk to even my mom about it and she didn't even know what to do. She was like, well, how's your husband? I'm like, who gives a fuck about him? <laughs> He's fine. <laughs> He's fine. He could have babies till he's 90. In fact, I feel like men could die and your sperm would still be alive. It's not fair. I'm sorry, guys. I was feeling a little worn out, but I was reading a lot of stuff online how two miscarriages is totally normal. And a lot of people have miscarriages, but don't talk about it, so you don't even know that, right? So I'm like, no problem, okay? I lost four pounds. I was feeling good about myself. I'm going to go back in and do another IVF. I go back in, I do the IVF, I get pregnant again. And I'm just like, eye on the prize, y'all. Don't stress me, don't come near me. I'm not gonna do your panel show, I'm not gonna fly and do your pilot. It's gonna be all about me, right? Of course I get a phone call for work. And my manager's like, Channing Tatum is doing Magic Mike Live in Vegas. I was like, say what? <laughs> Can you imagine my pregnant ass around all these naked men? I was like, what time is the meeting? <laughs> so I go and meet his creative team and they look, just picture how you think his creative teams look, okay? That's, it was a long white table with white chairs. Everybody has like abs. <laughs> They're super nice. They're like, oh my God, we love that you own your sexuality. And I was like, yes, don't get it twisted. And they're showing me videos of guys like jumping over like women half naked and they're singing and it's just like a very sexy America's Got Talent audition and they're just, and they're like, why do you think you would want to host this? And I'm like talking about how like women should own their sexuality and not apologize for liking stuff and just be out and like it's political climate right now. Like women just need to go out and just find a safe space. And as I'm talking to them, I feel myself having another fucking miscarriage. And I'm like, is this really happening right now? Am I just going to fuck up everybody's white furniture? <laughs> is this what's going to happen? So I got up and I left. I didn't get the job, which is fine. But what is fucked up is every time I see Channing Tatum, I think of miscarriage. <clears throat> and at this point, I really just have to say to myself, I'm tired. I'm tired, it's not fair, I don't know why, I am a good person, I take care of everybody's kids. You know, I've been trying so long, people have been single and now they're married with kids. The people with, um, you know, that don't even pay their bills have kids now, like everybody's got the kids, you know what I mean? And people think they're helping me by sending me pictures of their dumb kids. I don't give a fuck about your kids. I want my own. Thank you. <laughs> But I just don't know, I'm such a fighter. And I'm not a sad person. But I just don't know what to do anymore. Because it feels like I've been in a car three times and each time I've gotten in a car accident. So it's like, how do I get back in that car? The good thing is though, I'm cute and I'm funny. <laughs> so I can make money. 
I can make money and I can find other options like surrogacy and adoption because honestly there are so many tender little kids in this world that need homes too that I am open to it and you guys are amazing thank you for listening to my story all for this week's episode folks this is the wonderful sharon jones and the dab kings behind me now and we just heard from the wonderful michelle buteau you can find her at michellebuteau.com that's b-u-t-e-a-u don't forget that we upload all kinds of bonus content on a regular basis at patreon.com if you become a patron of ours, if you go to patreon.com slash risk, you know, and donate a dollar a month, $3, $5, whatever you can afford. And then you'll have access to all kinds of bonus content. Of course, if you start donating higher amounts, you'll have access to special perks and prizes beyond that. But I think what we'll do this week is upload the bit that I did this particular night at the Bell House that we just heard. <laughs> I told up front at the beginning of the show about a couple of dreams I had recently had that were just completely ridiculous. And so we'll upload that audio for our Patreon patrons at patreon.com slash risk. Now, here is where risk is coming next. May 13th, we are at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. May 20th, we are in Denver, Colorado. May 20th, we're in Denver. I think we're still taking pitches for that. <laughs> Go to risk-show.com slash submissions. The theme that night is irresistible. May 24th, we're back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. June 9th, we're in Portland, Oregon. June 9th, we're in Portland, Oregon. June 10th, we're in Seattle, Washington. June 11th, we're in Vancouver. So on June 9th in Portland, the theme is hype. On June 10th in Seattle, the theme is destructive. On June 11th in Vancouver, the theme is monster. We're still taking pitches for all three of those shows on the submissions page at wristshow.com. On July 1st, we are in North Adams, Massachusetts at the Mass Mocha. The theme that night is revolting. We're taking pitches for that. 
July 8th, we're in Washington, D.C. at the Black Cat. The theme is one of a kind. July 15th, we're in Philadelphia. The theme is Revelation, taking pitches for all those shows. Finally, September 9th, we are in Salt Lake City, Utah. The theme that night is unexpected. Remember, you can always pitch us at riskdeshowcom slash submissions. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, at Risk Show. On Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. You can always comment on the episodes on iTunes. That's very helpful to us. Or on the listen pages at risk-show.com where the tables of contents of all the episodes are. And if you're interested in storytelling training, we do that too at thestorystudio.org. We do one-on-one training over Skype or in person, corporate workshops, all kinds of workshops to work those communication muscles. (laughs) Storytelling training at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. still here I mean it's over the show's totally over you could, you could be listening to like Dan Carlin by now you know or um I don't know the Joe Rogan thing could be listening to like um Tara Brock even. I don't know. Waking up with Sam Harris. You could be waking up with Sam Harris right now. I I, I don't know what you're still doing listening to this. What the fuck with, with Mark Marin? You that's that's a could be listening to that. Um all songs considered that's I've heard that one before don't don't you guys like um my dad wrote a porno you know we heard that one it's like this guy his dad wrote a porno that's what that one's about.